This episode is brought to you by the Innovative Leadership Institute, working with companies that recognize the need to upskill their leaders and transform their organizations. We help executive teams prepare for accelerated uncertainty by creating the foresight needed to stay competitive and transforming organizations to become future-ready. If you'd like to discuss how we can help prepare your organization for tomorrow, please visit InnovativeLeadership.com and click Contact Us. I'm Maureen Metcalf, and this is Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. As the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute, I'm constantly looking for information that helps you become future ready. Today's guest, Dre Baldwin, is the CEO and founder of Work On Your Game, Inc. He'll do just that as we discuss the pro-athletic mindset in business and life. Welcome, Dre. I am excited to be here, Maureen. Thank you for having me on. Looking forward to this conversation. Me too. So let's start with just a little bit of your background, and then we'll talk about working on your game and why it applies to business. I'm from the city of Philadelphia, PA, now live in Miami, Florida. I was always an athlete growing up, played every sport, a little bit of everything, a little bit of football, but never really got into tackle, never actually got the equipment, so I never really played football. Then went on to baseball, and I played baseball for several years, youth baseball, but I found out at some point in my early teens that my ceiling as a baseball player was mediocre at best. So I gave up on baseball and moved on to basketball. That was around age 14, which is relatively late for someone who's trying to go somewhere in sports, you know, like playing college, went alone, played pro. But that was the situation. I only played one year of high school basketball, sat on the bench that one year, averaged two points per game, which I always like to joke. You know, if I was playing soccer or hockey, I'd be in the Hall of Fame, two points per game. But in basketball, it's nothing. So I uh, walked on to playing in college, and I walked on at the Division three level, which is the third tier of sports for those of you who follow sports. You know, the sports you see on TV for college is Division One usually. March Madness, that's Division One. We were down at Division Three basement. And players that play at that level usually don't even have aspirations to play pro, let alone do they actually do it. But I was able to make it happen after graduating from college. I hustled my way into playing pro ball. I went to this event called an exposure camp. It was like a job fair, but you pay and you actually play your sport. So I went there with a bunch of other players who were trying to prove themselves pro-worthy. Played pretty well there. That's basically what launched my career. Played nine years pro ball, starting in 2005 in Countess, Lithuania, eight different countries. And while I was doing that, Maureen, I started publishing videos to this brand new platform called YouTube. And this is in 2005. So I do literally mean brand new. And this is basketball material. This is just for basketball players to learn how to practice basketball. That's pretty much what it became. I realized that the players who were watching me just wanted to see somebody show them how to practice because they could now at this point, you know, back in our days, Marine, we couldn't go on the internet and crowdsource information. But by this point, you could crowdsource information from anybody. This is 2005. So I just started making more basketball videos, built up an audience through athletics. And those players just started asking me questions about mindset. And this is kind of where the work when your game thing started, because they would ask me about why do you show up every day to work out? Or how do you get the confidence to perform in the game when it matters? Or you got cut from your high school team three times. You walked on in college. You had to hustle your way into the pros. What kept you going? All those times where it looked like it was pretty much over. Why'd you keep going? That's how I got started getting known on the internet or how do you get started playing overseas? How do you get started building a brand? And so I started answering these questions in my material and that created the foundation of what Work On Your Game became, which we'll get to, I'm sure, in a second. 
I started writing books around 2010. Also at that time, I started creating my own products and offers. So that's really when I became an entrepreneur around that 2010 period, but I kept playing ball till 2015. So I had both of those going for about half of my athletic career. I was doing business on the internet and playing basketball. 2015, stopped playing basketball, went into full-time entrepreneurship. And fast forward to today, that's how we got here. So what working your game is all about is taking the tools and these strategies to help athletes get to the top 1% in the sports world. And we translate them over to the business world. I love that you shared that your path wasn't an immediate one. It wasn't a clear one. I think for most of us, you struggle with what am I going to do? And you, you know, you may be lucky enough to fall into the right thing. I became an economics major in college. I thought I was going to be either an engineer or an attorney, but I had a crush on my economics professor. So I chose economics. <laughs> if people are choosing their careers, both I had a crush on him. Is it dating? I did. But 20 years later, 20 years later, not in college, okay. he did not do anything inappropriate. Okay. But the economics stuck. I loved it. And yet I graduated from college not being clear what economists did. So then there's get the first job and went into corporate finance and, you know, made the meandering career, got my MBA. The reason I'm saying this is for so many of us, the path just isn't obvious even for you as an athlete, it sounds like you weren't sure which sport. You knew you loved sport, but once you started playing basketball, you weren't the best kid on the court. For the best kid on the court, it's probably an easy decision. For the rest of us who are not the best at the thing, we've got to figure out what the thing is and then continue to show up every day. Because for most of us, it's hard a lot of the time. What keeps you getting up and going to work what makes that possible on the days where you'd rather go back to bed and not look at your laptop? Great question. So there's a, a whole framework around discipline that we call the third day. And it's all about that. That third day is all about, let's just think if somebody is going to the gym, for example, they haven't been there for a while, maybe a New Year's resolution to start working out or they, they're getting married or whatever the situation. First day there, they're all excited, right? You got new workout gear, new sneakers, new boot camp class, new personal trainer. You're all excited to go to the gym and that workout kicks your butt because you haven't been there in a while and the trainer's going to push you just to show you how out of shape you actually are. So you work it, push yourself through the workout, drag yourself home, look in the mirror and you say, all the enthusiasm you have left, I'm doing this. Second day, it's a little bit tougher because you have the fatigue from day one. On top of the fact that you're not conditioned for working out every day, because it's been a while since you've done that. Trainer pushes you even harder on the second day, but you drag yourself through it. You get home, look in the mirror, and you say, with well, this is a little bit less enthusiasm, I'm doing this. By the third day, Marie, things change. Already on the third day. By the third day, those workout sneakers feel like they're made of cement. By the third day, your body and mind are having a difference of opinion. By that third day, you don't even want to talk to the trainer. You don't want to say hi to the smiling person at the front desk of the gym because your, your energy is just not there. And you realize third day is the realization that this thing that you signed up for is not going to be one big party and it's not all fun and games, that there's some actual work involved in this. And all of us, no matter what we do, we all hit this point where we realize that the thing that we signed up for is not going to be as fun as they look like in the brochure. And the third day is not just the occurrence of what occurs. It's the decision that you make of what are you going to do in that moment? Are you going to show up and deliver consistently like a professional, even when you don't feel like it? Or are you going to do the opposite and be an amateur? But what makes a professional professional is by definition, a person who does something as their main paid occupation. Or just think about that as consumers who pays for something that we don't know what we're going to get. Nobody. Nobody shows up and pays for anything when we don't know what we're getting. We want consistency for anything that we pay money for. So the professional has to be consistent in their performance, even when you don't feel like performing. And what I like to tell entrepreneurs all the time and athletes as well, 
is that there will be days when you don't feel like being at work, but nobody should be able to tell which day that is because your performance should be consistent regardless. So that's my answer to your question. Thank you. And for leaders, it's even harder mm -hmm. because people are looking at us differently. They're looking at us to motivate them, to encourage them, to inspire them. And if I don't feel like being here, it's really hard to inspire other people to want to be here and give their best. That's right. hundred percent. And as a leader, your people are drawing their energy from you. So the way that you show up is determining how they might show up. And also when you're the leader, depending on the kind of work you're in, the people who are working with and for you, they may not be at your level. They may only be able to get to about 80% of what you can get to. So if you're not bringing the energy, then you know they're not going to bring it. So everything kind of trickles down from you as the person on top. On that note, you talk about discipline. Mm -hmm. And I think all of us intuitively know it matters but how do I connect to my internal something when it's either day three and I'm tired of working out and I don't see results yet? Or it's day 10 in my career. I'm walking into a meeting. I anticipate that I'm going to be met with resistance from my board or people who report to me. And it stopped being fun. And yet, to your point, I've got to motivate and inspire people. How does discipline help me connect with that? And can it help me rebuild my interest in being here? Well, absolutely. It can help it. And how does discipline do this? Well, discipline is the answer to the question. But the bigger question goes a level higher because what a lot of people incorrectly think, they think discipline is a starting point. If you just get more discipline, because I hear this from people every day. Somebody's telling me how they need to be more consistent, more persistent, more disciplined, for lack of a better term. People are telling me this every single day. And they're like, well, Dre, how can I do it? The challenge is discipline is not something that you force feed upon yourself. You can't make yourself be more disciplined. Technically, you can, but it's not going to last. What you want to do instead is understand the equation. Because when anybody's looking to be more disciplined so that they can, let's say, lose weight, or get in better shape, or they can finally launch their podcast, or finally finish writing their book, or put their website out, or whatever it is that they need to be disciplined to do. If you're trying to force yourself to be disciplined in order to do it, it's not going to work. It won't last. Instead, you have to understand how the formula actually works, which is structure creates discipline. Discipline does not create structure. Structure creates discipline. So any of us, so you think of your parents growing up, they created a, a strong structure for you to follow, you were disciplined because they provided the structure. You weren't just born disciplined, right? You fit into the structure that was created for you by your parents, by your coaches, by your teachers, by any responsible adults that you had around you. And because of the structure, you were positioned to be disciplined. So it's the same thing for the rest of us. Anything that we want to be disciplined at, first question we got to ask ourselves is, what structure do I need to put in place so that the discipline becomes easy? That's what we need to be looking at. Growing up with a military dad, there was no question about structure. We, I had structure. My brother had structure. And we had discipline in the form of corrective action when we did not do as told. <laughs> so let's go to organizationally. We talk about, in one of our frameworks, what goes on inside of me. So what do I value? How do I behave? Our culture and our systems and processes. And my assumption is when you talk about structure, it is the systems and processes we build, but also the culture that reinforces the unwritten rules. Not I get docked pay or I get a pay raise, but what do people say to me and about me when I'm in the room and when I'm not in the room? That's right. And as a social speaker, some of that matters. hundred percent. All those words that you said can be synonymous with the structure, right? So culture is a structure. 
habits are a structure, a system is a structure, a process is a structure. Your standard operating procedures are a structure. And when people follow them, if there is one, then discipline comes out of the bottom of the funnel, so to speak. So that is 100% true. As you say that, part of what comes to mind is entrepreneurial organizations, smaller tech organizations, innovative organizations Mm. often claim that they don't have to be structured and the lack of structure is what creates the innovation. My hypothesis in listening to you is it's structure that matches innovation, not free for all. It can't be a free-for-all because then it'll be crazy. It'll be like uh, when you were in second grade and the teacher didn't come, you had a substitute. It was a zoo that day. So no, you don't want that. What you want instead is that you want to create the environment. And again, the culture can be, hey, this is a little bit more loose. There are some cultures in corporate where they say, hey, everybody needs to be in a suit and tie every day and your jacket needs to be buttoned. There are other environments where they say, wear whatever you want, but there is some type of organization. Anytime that a consistent result is being produced, there has to be some kind of structure in place. Or if you want a consistent result, then it has to be some kind of structure put in place. Now, every structure is not made the same way. People have different ways of doing things, but there has to be some consistency there if it's going to be a professionally run organization. If you're going to make money, it has to be professionally run just by definition. Can you give a couple of examples of maybe one athletic and one business of how you've seen people create structures, maybe something novel that we haven't all seen that really elevated people's games? I can use myself as an example here first. When I first got on the internet, and this is before we were using phrases like content and social media and influencers and things like that. I noticed that there was an underserved audience of athletes who wanted to learn how to play basketball because I was in the gym. They saw that I knew how to play, but they didn't know who I was. But they saw I was putting free videos on the internet. So why not milk this opportunity? So they would just ask me, hey, can you make more videos? That was in 2005. So around 2009, Google had purchased YouTube. And now you can make money from putting videos on the internet. Because before that, if you were putting videos on the internet, you were some bum living in your mom's basement and needed to take a shower and get a real job, right? So... Now you could actually make a business out of this stuff. I'm thinking, how can I do this? What can I do to take advantage of this? Because now I know the more content I put out and the more it gets seen, the more money I make. So how do I maximize this? That was my first question. So I thought I go to the gym every day. Why not put out a video every single day? Now, this is a great idea in theory, but how can you actually do it? That was the challenge. Who can put out a video every day? Nowadays, that seems not that hard to do because everybody's doing it. But back then, 2009, this is not a normal thing. So what I started doing, Maureen, was the structure was I just started writing down everything I knew about the game. I knew everything I knew how to do that I could actually show you on camera. I started writing it down and then I'll go to the gym and I'll record it. And the challenge was I was like, I'm going to run out of ideas in about a month. All right. What am I going to do here? But what I found was what I realized was that I could take a kind of like a tree of movements, a tree of exercise, a tree of drills that let's say 30 different drills, right? Anytime I came up with a new move, I could just plug that new move into this tree of 30 drills. I could take the new move and do piece one, new move, piece two, new move, piece three, new move, piece four. So every time I thought of a new move, I knew I was getting 30 videos out of it. So you'd have content for a month for each new move. Exactly. And this is how I still put out videos every day on YouTube to this very day. Now, they're not basketball. It it morphed into something else. But I still put out videos every day simply because I started exercising what I call the idea muscle. I get good at coming up with ideas, then that muscle stays strong, it stays malleable, and you can keep coming up with ideas. So the first thing I did was come up with that structure, which allowed me to take one idea and it produced 30 pieces of content. That was the structure. 
Every one idea meant 30 pieces of content. So I didn't have to come up with a thousand ideas. I needed 10 ideas. And there you go. That's 300 videos. And with one video a day, that's almost a whole year's worth of material if we're doing it that way. Just to give you a bare bones example in the sports side of how I did it. And that elevated my game because it got me known on the internet. So the funny thing I tell people all the time is now, when I'm in the mall or something these days, a young man might be 30 years of age, succeeded me, says, man, I used to watch you on YouTube. And you know, I did all this work to become a professional athlete, but nobody knows me from playing professional sports. They all know me from YouTube, right? They, they all know me from these YouTube videos. Nobody knows me from my actual career. So it's just funny that it worked out that way. And these days, you know, there are YouTubers who are more famous than the people who are doing it the traditional way. YouTubers are more famous than people on TV and YouTube athletes more famous than professional athletes. YouTube musicians more famous than guys who are signing record contracts. So it's funny that it worked out that way. So that's on the sports side. It's kind of a business thing as well. But on the business side, once I started creating products, these are just training programs for basketball players, teaching them how to play basketball. And this was a shooting program was $4.99. Dribbling program was $4.99. That's how I got started. So $5 programs on the internet. And I'll put a video on YouTube and just say, hey, if you want more drills like this, click the link in the description and go buy the program. So we were selling a lot of programs just off of that. And then I remember I did this, because uh, this is when influencing started to become a thing. It was about 10 years ago, 2013. I did this influencer event with Nike in the summer of 2013, where they took me and about 20 other basketball influencers. They flew us all to New York, put us up in the, the Sheraton in Times Square. We did this big event for about three, four days, and they gave us all this free stuff. It was so much free stuff, I had to check an extra bag just to get home. I remember following up with the people from Nike because there were some higher ups there that were working the event. And I was following up with them like, look, you all are putting videos on YouTube, but y'all aren't really using it the right way. The NBA players that you all have, but they had the endorsees, right? These guys can't explain basketball. They can play, but they can't explain it. My key skills, I could explain what I was doing. And the players, they can play, but they couldn't break it down. So I wrote up a proposal to them. Let me take over your YouTube channel and let me make the content. And they took it up the ladder and came back down the ladder and the answer was no. All right, you can't do it. <laughs> We're going to have the NBA guys do it. And I was just, just racking my brain trying to figure out how can I take what they're doing and make it work even if I can't do it with them? How can I do it for myself? So Nike used to always do this thing. They would have these things called the signature moves where they would take somebody like uh, Kobe Bryant and they would have that player do a video where he would break down a move that he was known for. So Kobe talked about, hey, here's how you beat a guy off the dribble, get to the rim and dunk it. Or here's how you shoot a pull-up jump shot. And they called them the signature moves. So here's Kobe's signature move. Here's Richard Hamilton's signature move. But Nike wouldn't work with me. They wouldn't let me take over the channel because I knew I could do a better neighbor doing it. So I said, right, here's what I'll do. I'm going to create a bunch of training programs called the signature workouts. And the signature workouts are going to be based on the playing style of the NBA players that the players who are watching me on YouTube already like. I'm going to make a, a workout program that's based around Kobe Bryant's game, or I'm going to make another one based around Michael Jordan's game, another one based around Stephen Curry's game. So I made all these programs based around the skill sets of the players who were already out there and already known. So then when I went to my audience and said, hey, I made these signature workouts. So if you want to learn how to play like James Harden, get this program. You want to play like Kobe, get this one. You want to play like Steph Curry, get this one. And the players loved this. They ate this up. And that was, to this day, Maureen, probably the best business idea I ever had was coming up with those programs because the players were no longer getting the programs because Dre said it. They were getting the programs because they wanted to be Kobe. And I think I'm a pretty good guy, but me, Kobe, me, Kobe, or they were trying to be Kobe. There was so much leverage in that. You want to play like Kobe, get this program. 
that worked a lot better than saying, hey, you want to play like me? And the structure was, all I did was think of a player. I took a bunch of videos that I already had, drills I had already done, that were similar to that player's playing style. Because again, my skill as a basketball player was not only my ability to explain it, but also my versatility. You could take and name any player, I could basically copy their moves and show you how to do it. So I could be this guy this day, this guy the next day, this guy the next day. And I would just put those drills together in a program, break them down, explain it in words, give them a link to the video so they could follow it and do it on their own. And then I made programs off of it. So that right there was a, again, one of my best business ideas that I ever had. No ads either. No ads either. I love the idea that you are creating the structure for the program. But the other thing I hear, and I don't know if this is considered the discipline, is you may have a hundred ideas but you sift them down and pick the ideas you're going to focus on and you take that from idea to revenue. I haven't heard you say, and then I flailed around a little bit and that one didn't work. I'm guessing you may have a couple that weren't as effective as others. Oh yeah. For every one that worked, I had 10 that did. So absolutely. So how do you know which one's not going to work and the idea of you fall in love with your babies, right? This is my thing. And how do you know when to invest and when to stop investing? Oh, well, I never fell in love with my babies. <laughs> never, I never fell in love with them. The first program I ever put out was the training programs and they immediately worked because I tested it first based on a experiment that I got from Tim Ferriss. I'm sure you're familiar with him for our work week guy. And he just said, get a one page free hosting platform, hosting website, and say what the name of your product is, give a brief description of the product, and then put a little button that says, buy this program now for, and then put the price. And when someone clicks on that button, it takes them to another page that says, this product is under construction, but as soon as it's ready, we'll email you and let you know it's ready and get people to put their email address in. He said, don't go to the people who already know you because they might do it just because they like you. Put $5 into Google ads and drive traffic based on your keyword to that website. So you get people who don't know you and never heard of you before. See if they put their email address in. Now, as a disclaimer to everybody, you cannot do this with $5 in Google ads today. Now, this is 2009. You spent $5. Today, it'd be about 500 But I did it with $5, and people who never heard of me were putting their email address in. That's when I went and made the program, and it immediately took off. So as far as your point there, how do you know when to get rid of something? Or well, once I put it out, I would see, what's the response? Or is anybody responding to this or are they not? And when you're selling programs at five, 10, 20 bucks, it's not like it's a price thing. It's just a, do people want this or not? Now, if you're selling a $20,000 program, now you got to be a little bit more discerning as to why people aren't buying. That may be a different reason. But for $5, either you want it or you don't. So that's how I was able to not waste too much time on contemplation. When you talked about how you evolved all the way back to high school, the idea of mental toughness resonated as when something didn't work, you kept going. So combination of discipline and structure, also the inner motivation, not the external of I'm going to keep showing up. Explain a little bit the mental toughness and how that fits with discipline and structure. The way I define discipline is your willingness to show up every day and do the work. And confidence is your ability to put yourself out there boldly and authentically. And what mental toughness is, is your ability to stay disciplined and stay confident, even though doing all the discipline stuff and the confidence stuff hasn't worked yet. That's what mental toughness is about. Can you keep going? So some people may call this persistence or grit or stick to They all can be uh, synonymous in this context. So what mental toughness is about is sticking to the program and sticking to the plan, even when the plan hasn't worked. Now, the caveat to that is given you have sound reason to believe that you have a good plan. 
Now, if you just came up with the plan out of nowhere and there's no proof that this plan actually works, it doesn't mean it can't work, but I'd rather be mentally tough and stick to a plan that I know works because it's coming from some kind of reliable source that tells me this will actually work. Now, when you're first starting out, maybe you don't have any reliable sources. For example, myself, uh, being a high school player who got cut from the team as a junior, I didn't have any source material that says, keep playing because you're going to become a pro athlete five years from now. But I didn't have any other options. I had nothing better to do. So might as well try out again. What's the worst that could happen? So it does sound like there's also a trade-off. That's right. And that was where I was saying, fall in love with your babies, idea babies. How do you know which ones to cut and which ones to keep? Because mental toughness is a great idea until you are mentally tough and have grit and, and keep working something that's really not going to work. Yeah, it's a, it's a judgment call. Ultimately, it becomes a judgment call. And you know, there are no perfect scenarios in life. There are only trade-offs. Everything is a trade-off. Whether we recognize it or not, everything is a trade-off and everything has an opportunity cost. So we have to make those judgment calls because people will ask me stuff like that. Dre, should I quit basketball or should I keep playing? Should I keep doing this business or should I not? I give them my expert advice. Then I always end it by saying, ultimately, you have to decide because I don't have to live with the outcome. You do. And so whatever you end up doing, you got to live with it. I don't have to live with it. So you can't go off what I say. You got to go off what you say. You can take my advice into account, but ultimately the decision comes down to you. And life is all amalgamation of all the decisions that we make. So it sounds like somewhere along the lines, you developed a business acumen, for lack of a better term, an ability to, to make those trade-offs and know where to invest your time as a 14-year-old that decision was very different, presumably, than it is now, because now you do have other choices. And investing your time in something that's not going to work, you want to minimize. At 14, you're just playing around. You got time to waste. So how did you develop that ability to make good trade-offs, to not fall in love with the ideas? Because so often I work with leaders, myself included sometimes, that I, I hope I'm not in love with bad ideas, but it takes a while to figure that out. It's not being emotionally attached to whatever the thing is. You are maybe emotionally attached to the end goal, but you're not emotionally attached to the steps in the process. You can't get emotionally attached to a tactic because tactics come and go. Strategies change a little bit less, but principles never change. Principles govern the strategies, the strategies govern the tactics. So when it comes to the ideas that I come up with, I look at them as they're like tactics. Like I might have a great idea for maybe I'll make a video about this. I'll make the video, put it out, and video bombs. Like nobody likes it. People don't get excited about it the way I thought they would be. It's okay. I'll make another video tomorrow. So I don't get married to the idea. What you get married to is the overall outcome, which is I'm going to continue putting material out there so that my name is visible and findable. So if somebody is looking for something that I talk about, they will find it because I'm going to be somewhere in that search result. That's the principle. The strategy is I'm going to do it through YouTube and podcasting and appear on other people's podcasts. That's the strategy. And the tactics may be the different ways that I can do it. So maybe I'll use a GoPro camera. Maybe I'll hire somebody with a camera. Maybe I'll use my iPhone camera. Those are the tactics. So I'm, I'm never married to those. So it's just the different ways that I go about the things that I'm doing. And for me, I graduated from Penn State with a degree in business. Even though I started as a, I think I started as a computer science major, then I went to a psych major, and then I graduated with a business degree. I'm glad I switched to business because the only reason I did computer science is because I was into computers. But what am I going to do in a computer? I'm going to do business. And in psychology, I was always into reading books. And human psychology was, they now call personal development and professional development. But I can get that at the bookstore. I didn't need a college professor to teach it to me. So I'm glad I ended up in a business major. Do you have 
a clear life purpose. This is why I'm here on the planet and what I'm committed to doing. Because my sense is while you're doing things that look disparate, there's probably an organizing principle underneath all of them. Yes, it's a great question. And I tell this to entrepreneurs all the time. I ask them this rhetorically, what is your reason for existing? I'm specifically talking about business and the marketplace. Why do you exist? What are you bringing to the table that is not already on the table? Because if you don't know and you can't answer it, then why do we need you? And that's a big question. Everybody has to be able to answer that. So for me, the biggest thing is taking this whole philosophy of work on your game is really helping people understand that there is a process from which regardless of where you start, you can take yourself where you want to go as long as you have the right tools and you have the right mindset. And it starts with the mindset. Mindset is the foundation. Everything is built on mindset. All successes, all failures, the foundation of them is your mindset. On top of that, we build the game plan, which is the strategy. What do we actually do? What's the game plan here? Third thing is the system. How do we actually make the game plan work over and over again? How do we execute the plan consistently? And then last is the accountability. How do you hold yourself accountable and also your plan accountable? Because sometimes you're executing properly, but the plan just sucks. So sometimes we got to fix the plan. Sometimes we got to fix the person. But making sure that everybody is, there's a system of checks and balances, making sure that everything is working the way it's supposed to. So for me, it's about you can get to anywhere that you want to go as long as you're willing to put in the work. You understand what game you're in and you learn how to play that game. How do you help people figure out what game they're in? They got to give me some information first. When I'm talking to entrepreneurs, I'm often surprised, Murray, and a lot of entrepreneurs don't know what business they're in. It depends on what the person is trying to do. And I ask them, do you know what business you're in? Do you know what game you're actually playing here? And often they don't. So it depends on who they are and what they're trying to do. Once I get some source information, not much, I can help them figure it out. And every entrepreneur is in the business of generating revenue. How often are people that you're working with also trying to do something with deeper purpose? So let me give the example of what I think I'm doing. I would say the world is at a point of significant change. And the direction any organization goes is influenced heavily by its leaders. Effective leaders increase the probability of positive outcomes. Really bad leaders increase the probability of a negative outcome. Right. That's my why. How do I help leaders in organizations influence their organizations, all of the humans that work for those organizations, their families, the communities involved. Leaders are the lever for all of that. So when you are working with entrepreneurs, are you helping them connect with their why? It depends on what they want. So when I'm working with an entrepreneur, it really depends on why they are coming to me. Sometimes they're coming to me because they just want to get better at communicating. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my clients right now, she's in the medical space and her challenges. Sometimes she gets a little bit long winded and she likes to bring all her friends into group texts and some of them get annoyed at her and they think she's being unprofessional. And she is a little bit too friendly to strangers on the internet. And she ends up talking to people who are not even real people on the internet. And then she gets all distraught about it. She wants to get better at saying no to people, just being able to say no. And she came to me for that because she heard me talking somewhere and she was like, my style and said, you could probably teach me how to be more like this type of person. And she was right. But she wasn't looking to figure out her why. So it depends on who they are and what they want. Because I have a very eclectic clientele base simply because of my background as an athlete and then being an entrepreneur and then discussions that I get involved in online might not be about either one of those things. It's so often about how we communicate and personal development and just growing yourself as a professional and just growing yourself as an individual. I'm not always helping people find their why because that's sometimes 
it never even comes up in the conversation. How did you find yours? Because my guess is you have a sense of why you do what you do. Another thing is, Maureen, when I saw the internet, I knew it was for me. As soon as I saw it, I saw the internet probably about mid-90s when I saw what it could do. You know, this is back to the AOL dial-up days, so you, I can still hear that sound, that static sound and then a little beep, and, <laughs> you know, AOL with the CD yep. and the newspaper. I remember those days, and I remember when I got on it, I used to play chess in middle school, so you could play chess against other people. And then the AOL instant messenger, and then the AOL chat rooms, and then email came along, and I'm like, wait, you can talk to people that you never even met on the computer, and you can just sit in the house and talk to other people, and then you can make your own website. Now you can put your messages out there. Now you can publish yourself, and all these things. Then the visual stuff came in. It wasn't just textual. Now you can make videos. I knew it was for me. I knew I was going to be doing something on the internet. That's why I majored in computer science. I wanted to be on computers, but not on the backside. I didn't want to be a coder. I don't know how to code to this day, but I knew I wanted to be on the front end, but the front end didn't start to exist until I was out of college. That was around 2005, 06. That's when you know, Facebook came around, opened up, and then all these other apps came around. And that just happened to be a period where I was looking for something because as a pro athlete, I don't know if people know this, but we have a lot of downtime. A long day at work for a pro athlete is about four hours. All right, that's a long day. All right, normal day is about an hour or two. But we got a lot of time. So when you see athletes making rap albums, that's why. Right, it's not because they can rap, <laughs> and most of them can't. It's because they don't have anything else to do. So they got to find something to do with that time. I just happen to be a computer guy, and I happen to be a reader. So I write books, and I got on the internet. That's how it got you. So you said you've written 33 books. Mm -hmm. What is the organizing principle behind what do you choose and what do you not choose to write about? Uh, that's another great question there. I could theoretically write a thousand books and maybe I will, depending on how AI software goes and it can help me out. But as far as what I choose to write about, often it's just a matter of how much people are asking me about certain things because all the content I've ever created and I've created, I believe more original content over the last 18 years than any person on the internet. Now, some people have more published stuff because they repurpose their stuff better than I have repurposed mine. Some people repurpose like ridiculously. I'm catching up. I'm like, let this AI software help me. I'm catch up. But as far as original content, I've created more than anybody. And the way that I create content is all based on only two things. Number one, a question that I keep getting asked over and over again. And number two, a challenge that I see and I understand that people, there's a question that if they answered that question, they would solve that challenge, but they don't even know what the question is. So I answer the question for them. I present the question to them. I tell them why this is the question that you don't even know you need to ask. And then I answer it for them. All my content is based on those two things. And nowadays, Maureen, 99% of my content is me telling you the question that you didn't even know to ask. The ones that people know to ask, I've already answered those. I'm just thinking of Steve Jobs anticipating what people needed in technology before they knew they needed it. I never said I need an iPod. Right. Now, Steve Jobs, he was an anomaly because most entrepreneurs who do that fail. It'd be better to just solve a problem that you know exists than to create one and hope that you're right. Now, he just happened to be a genius, but most of us ain't geniuses. Well, and you've said, though, you, you've answered the things people are asking. Now you anticipate, which is what you do after decades of experience, not your first day in business. Yeah, exactly. He had been around for a while before that came out. Many people didn't know about him, but he had been around. To your point, he's an anomaly. That's like people thinking they're Steve Jobs is like saying, I don't need to go to college because Steve Jobs didn't go to college. Well, yeah. LeBron James didn't go either. Again, an anomaly. <laughs> right. <laughs> we can all find them, but... That that's not my justification for not doing something. Yeah, you need a better reason than that. 
And again, I'm not advocating that everyone should go to college. I'm rather trying to make the point that you can't pick out someone who is an exception to the rule and use it to justify. Yeah, I tell people that all the time. The exceptions prove the rule. They do not negate the rule. So how about personal initiative? It seems like anyone who's done thousands of videos and written 33 books has a lot of personal initiative. How does this fit into your framework and what drives you? The thing is with the personal initiative, it's what puts all this stuff to motion because the other three parts of it are discipline, which is a a mindset, it's a way of thinking, confidence, also a way of thinking, mental toughness, also a way of thinking. A challenge for a lot of people these days is that we spend too much time thinking, not enough time doing anything because people get lost in the sauce of consuming information. I call them in my book, Working the Game, I call them pigs, professional information gatherers. Because we have access to so much information these days, it's very easy to just consume more and more information. I talk to people all the time who say, well, Dre, I want to start my business, but let me do some more research. I was talking to a guy about two weeks ago. He's in the medical space and he wants to leave the medical space. and He wants to start his own consultancy, consulting the same people who he works for now. So he's basically going to leave the job and basically turn his employer into his client. And I said, okay, well, how soon are you going to start this business? And he said, well, I need to do some more research on LLCs and how I'm going to do my stuff and websites and things like that. And I said, all right, how long is that going to take? He said, that'll take me probably about six months. I said, you can figure all that out in about six hours. <laughs> and the whole point is what people do these days, they get lost in the sauce of gathering information because there's always more information. Mm-hmm. If I go read some information right now, I'm going to see something I didn't know about. It's going to lead me down another rabbit hole. I'm going to be in another lane, read another book, take another course. And before you know it, three weeks have gone by and I haven't taken any action. So what I tell people is to have that action bias. And that's where you're more leaning towards doing stuff than thinking about stuff. So personal initiative is about taking all this mindset stuff and all the knowledge that we have. And we have access to vast amounts of it these days and actually putting it into action so you can get what we call activity knowledge as opposed to what some people we used to call book knowledge. I don't know what they call it now, but instead of passive knowledge, you have activity knowledge, meaning you know it because you've done it. And I tell people there are levels to this. You don't know something until you've actually done it. You don't truly know it until you can teach it. You don't really know it until you get somebody to pay you to teach it. So there are levels to this. (laughs) Dre, let's circle back now as we think about how all of this applies to leaders. What guidance do you have for leaders as they think through how do they apply these ideas for themselves, structure, discipline, confidence, and taking action? And how do they help create the container, so to speak, to ensure that the employees who work with them and for them are also delivering their personal and professional best? Most leaders are generally pretty solid at these things when it comes to being disciplined. You got to be disciplined in some level to become a leader. I definitely have to be confident and you're going to have to have some mental toughness because as a leader, you're taking all the arrows, right? You get hit first. And then the initiative to go and do something. The challenge is often what I found with leaders is that because they're the type of people who are so goal focused and outcome focused that either A, they're putting so much into their professional lives that they need help with putting these same things to work in their non-work lives. Mm. So for example, I have clients who earn you know, upwards of half a million dollars a year, but they're always at work. So they're not working out. They're not spending as much time with their kids. So they're having issues in their relationships, those kind of challenges. So I'm helping them more on the personal side. They're not asking me to help them make money because they already know how. And or they have people who work for them who don't have discipline, confidence, mental toughness, and they get frustrated because how do you not see this? How do you not understand this? Why are you not doing this? Uh, they have that challenge. So 
how do you get those people to do what you want them to do without jumping down their throats and you no know, stomping them out? Because that's often what they're thinking of doing. So I'm sometimes talking them off the ledge and getting them to put the gun down, metaphorically speaking, <laughs> so that they can actually talk to their staff in a way to kind of bring them along understanding and at the same time understanding that the people who are working for you uh, might be a reason why they're working for you because they don't have the same ambition that you have. They're not wired like you. So they're not going to do what you're doing. They are going to do a certain amount. They have a capacity. Your job is to get them to that capacity and then accept them as they are as long as they're doing what you need them to do. How do you help get them to that capacity? And I realize each situation is different. So just in broad strokes. The first thing is talking to the leader, because usually I'm talking to the leader and I'm learning from them, third party, what are the strengths and weaknesses of this person? Why'd you hire this person? What do they bring to the table that's actually helping? What are they doing that is really annoying and frustrating you? And once I get clear on exactly what that is, I tell them, okay, so you want them to do this, this, and this. Do they want this, this, and this? And what are they going to get out of it? You got to get those things aligned. You got to get their goals aligned with your goals. And if they're not aligned, enough, they might have to go, but usually those goals can be aligned enough. What does this person want? Or they want to make this much money. They want to have this kind of residual. They want to have these things. All right. You know that they want to have these things. You're sure about that. They say, yes. Okay. What do you want them to do? You need them to do these things. All right. Where's the alignment between what you want and what they want? And then the conversation is based around that. And what I am often helping leaders understand, and this Maureen this may just have something to do with the type of person I am, because these are the type of people who I attract. It's helping them understand that the conversation can't be about what you need them to do because you already tried that. Before I came into the picture, you already tried that and you got as far as you can get. Conversation needs to be about what do they want and how doing what you want them to do will help them get the outcomes that they want. And then you coaching them along and putting a structure in place that makes it simple for them to know what they need to do moving forward and doing it consistently. You know, as we look at all of the employee engagement kind of constructs and the issue with quiet quitting and large numbers of quiet quitters, large numbers of people disengaged, mm -hmm. it does seem that one of the biggest missing pieces, and this comes from the harmonic vibrancy framework, is that we don't often ask people, what's their why? How do I help you accomplish the thing you care about, whether it's funding your kids' college education or getting the next sports car or donating to your church, whatever the thing is, how is this experience or the income or the opportunities, how are those as a package allowing you to get closer to something you care about? The type A personality people, it's not just that they don't ask, they don't care. They don't care. All they care about is let's hit the bottom line. Yeah. Let's win the championship. I don't care what you want. Did you see the Michael Jordan documentary a couple of years ago? Chicago Bulls, The Last Dance. I don't think I did. Michael Jordan is a type A personality type of guy. He was not the kind of guy who would put an arm around your shoulder and console you and be empathetic. He's not that type of guy. All he cared about was we're going to win as much as possible and win the championship every year. You all are here to do a job to help me lead this team to win the championship. What you want, I really don't care. He didn't care. Now, he didn't say that in so many words, but he basically said it. If you watch the documentary, he basically let everybody know. My thing was about winning. And if you're playing a professional sport, you should probably want to win. That was his assumption. Now, did everybody want to win? Yes, but they all had other reasons besides that. Michael Jordan never asked and he never knew and he doesn't care. He still to this day doesn't care. And that's how some leaders are. They don't care. There needs to be somebody he had a teammate named Scotty Pippen. He was the kind of the in-between guy. He could take Michael's message because he had Michael's respect because he was a star as well. And he could kind of communicate that to the rest of the guys on the team. The rest of the guys on the team connected with Scotty, even though Michael was the main guy. So sometimes you may need that in-between guy 
or you got to help that main person become more of an in-between person so he or she can connect with the other people in your organization. But that connection has to happen somehow, some way. I love the idea that Michael didn't have to learn to do that because that may just not be how he's wired. And I've certainly had clients who would be more effective if they could do that better. And some of them are willing and others are saying, look, I'm winning championships. You know, we're making X amount of money or we're beating the competition in X kind of way. It's working for me. Why do I want your touchy feely crap? But if you've got Scotty. If you have a Scotty Pippen, or this is why in coaching now, nowadays with sports, especially see this in basketball, I don't know how much it's changed in uh, tackle football in America, but in basketball, there used to be three coaches. There'd be a head coach and two assistant coaches. But nowadays, it's like 15 coaches. If you watch a basketball game, there's like six coaches in the front row. Now they have the second row behind the bench is eight more coaches. There are some basketball teams. I went to a college game a few years ago. It was University of Miami against Georgia Tech down here at Miami. Georgia Tech's team had more coaches than they had players. They had about 15 coaches and about 12 players. I guess that's great for the coaches because they often get paid. They opened up these jobs. I don't know where the money came from, but they, they're paying these guys. But at the same time, it's, it's like the assistant coaches are the liaison between the head coach and the players. So I guess that's a thing in the sports world. I don't know if that's existing in the business world right now. So the leaders still have to figure this out. I would say in the business world, the organizations who are most successful either have leaders with both. I want to say universally with my clients, we've got some people who are brilliant at both. And that's probably true in sports as well. And we've got some people who aren't and they may get better but they may never be good. And recognizing that we need the liaison, the Scotty Pippen on the team, allows people to play to their strengths. You don't get to be a complete jerk, but you may never be good at being personable. Then the question is, how much does it matter? And does it matter at all? So you see the movie The Wolf of Wall Street? Yes, that I did see. All right, so you saw how... Leo DiCaprio, Jordan Belfort was. He wasn't that type of guy. His drive was about, we're going to make as much money as possible. And he assumed that if you work there, your goal was to make as much money as possible. And anybody who didn't have that goal didn't last. Even uh, Amazon, they have their principles of leadership posted on their website. And one of the things Jeff Bezos is famous for saying, if you want work-life balance, you want to go to your kids' soccer games, uh, you want to be able to go to dinner with your wife, this is not the place for you. You are here because you are driven to achieve. And if that means working 70 hours a week, then that's normal. And that's not a uh, outlier. That's the normal way that we do things around here. Now, I don't know if that's still the case because he's not even the CEO anymore, right? But that's what he was saying in his prime, no pun intended, when Amazon was doing their thing. <laughs> I worked with large consulting firms early in my career and it becomes your life. I was in those jobs for 12 years and I spent 12 years on the road. So every week, either Sunday through Friday or Monday morning through Thursday night was as short as it got. And that was an investment in my professional development, just like college. It just happened to be the path I chose. It's probably similar now. And there are certainly companies who will do that. It'll be curious to see our younger generations who are more purpose-focused than revenue-focused. How will they accept that kind of imbalance? Is it an investment in my future or is it we can't attract people if we have that kind of life anymore? 
It's a great question. I think it depends on who's who's leading, who's making, who's calling the shots, because there are going to be some, as the next generation comes up, there are going to be some old school people leading who say, hey, we're still going to do it the quote unquote old school way. But there are also going to be some next generation folks. I mean, it's not the whole generation, right? It's going to be some next generation folks who were raised at the feet of some of these old school people, and they're going to bring those old school principles with them into new organizations. I think it will be fewer, as you're saying, I agree with you, it'll be fewer of them. Because every generation is going to kind of reject what the previous generation did. That's going to happen. Uh, I'm interested to see what happens as well. Also, at the same time, uh, some things are going to be a little bit easier, I guess, for lack of a better term, for the next generation, simply because with the automations and software, I mean, think about what you had to do if you wanted to write a book 25 years ago versus what you had to do to write a book today. You can write a book from your phone. You don't have to go through any gatekeepers. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to have any level of expertise whatsoever. And the book can be out by tomorrow. But 25 years ago, what you had to do? So it was a lot easier just to put yourself out there. Video, TV, radio, books, publishing, everything. So it, it'll be interesting to see, I guess is the best I can say. Agreed. It will be interesting. And, and probably the range of outputs and outcomes will be, you know, if you're publishing books and you don't know what you're doing, you hopefully you won't sell heavily. But <laughs> you never know. Dre, what else would you like to cover as we hit the home stretch? What do you want listeners to take away as the most important points that you're making in your life's work? Most important thing is that the reason why this is called work on your game is because whether you're an athlete, entrepreneur, a librarian, a consultant, a teacher, a maintenance man, uh, we all have a game. Whatever it is that you're doing, there's a game that is being played at home as a parent, as a, a spouse, as a daughter, as a son, as a friend, there's a game that's being played. Your job is to know what game you're in, understand how that game works, and then work on your game so that you can play that game as best you possibly can. That is the inspiration as we wrap up. How would people find your books and videos and find you? Man, well, I'm everywhere on the internet, so for all that <laughs> stuff, you can, just, you can just Google me. But uh, I'm on all the social media platforms, so you name any social media platform, just look up my name, Dre Aldwin. I am on all of them. I post to everyone at least once a day. I send out a daily motivation text free of charge every day. To anybody uh, who would like to get that text, you can just text me at my number, 305-384-6894. I'm sure that'll be in the description somewhere. And uh, to work with me directly, uh, the best place to get started would be workonyourgameuniversity.com. Work on your game university. That's where I offer all my courses, all my coaching, all of that is there. And then once you get into my world, you know, text messages, social media, all of that will let you know about all the other stuff, like the books and all those things that you can get at your convenience. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom from an athletic perspective. Clearly, I don't know much, and many of our listeners do. What you've accomplished during your athletic career and during your business career is quite commendable there's a lot people can learn from you. So thank you for taking your time today to share your wisdom and insights. Well, I much appreciate the opportunity here, Maureen. Thank you for sharing your platform and the opportunity to share with your audience. And hopefully we get some great feedback from everybody. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. And thank you for making the contributions you're making in our very dynamic world. Mm -hmm.